Turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 11. It is good to be back. It seems like it's been a month since I've been here. I think because it's been a month since I've been here. Uh, we took off three weeks for Christmas, and I was supposed to be back last week, but uh, somebody in my house got COVID. Oh. Um, I called Ben and said, can I come? And he said, no. <laughs> He's a smart guy. Uh, I, I ended up sleeping in the living room for five days. I thought about sending all my sons-in-law a picture saying, this is where you end up if you're not nice to your wife. <laughs> but I didn't do that. We did go to Colorado before Christmas for my number one grandson's fourth birthday, and uh, we saw all the trucks that were blown over by the high winds. They were on the side of the road, blown over. And we got to my daughter's house and asked, why isn't there snow on top of the mountains? And my daughter said, the 100 mile an hour winds blew the snow off the mountains. So we had a good time anyway. If you remember, last year, years ago, we transitioned in the book of Mark to Mark I mean, to Jesus entering Jerusalem. He, is, he has spent most of his ministry, not all, but most of it, up in the northern part by the Sea of Galilee. And he has now come to Jerusalem. We know why he came to Jerusalem. He is going to be tried, crucified, and resurrected. But that's to come. So... The last lesson we did, we had Jesus coming in, what is known as the triumphant entry, where the people acknowledge who he is. He goes into the temple and he looks around, and then he leaves. And then he comes back the next day and he cleanses, he drives out the money changers in the temple. And that was the last lesson we did. Now, in order to do that lesson, we actually had to skip a couple of verses. If you start in chapter 11, you get down to uh, verse 12, and we skipped a little bit because I wanted to cover both the triumphant entry and the cleansing of the temple. But in between, we have another rather odd occurrence. Let's start in verse 12. On the following day, this is the day after the triumphant entry and the day that he's going to clean the temple out, okay? On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find some, anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And then he goes into Jerusalem. He cleanses the temple. He tells them, my house is, should be a house of prayer, not a den of thieves. That was the last lesson. So we pick up again in verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, this would be the next morning, they saw the fig tree withered to its roots. 
Remember, the day before, Jesus had been walking by. He was hungry, thought he'd grab a fig or two to nibble on on the way. The tree had no figs because it wasn't the season for figs. And he cursed the tree. And the disciples had heard that. So now they're coming back the next day and they notice that the tree is withered and dead. Think about that for a while, okay? We've all seen dead trees. It usually doesn't happen overnight. And it usually doesn't happen because somebody told it to die. I mean, if that worked, I have a few stumps in my yard I'd like to curse, okay? Just saying. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus is going to respond to this. It is interesting if you read commentaries of this passage. They seem to know a whole lot about fig trees that I don't claim to know. Okay? Um, Some will imply that there is such a thing as an early fruit on the fig tree. And Jesus had some expectation that the early fruit would be there even though the... I don't know. I don't understand fig trees. What I do understand, though, is that this is a picture of something. Jesus is trying to give them a picture of what's going to happen. And that's really going to be what today's lesson is going to be about. Not fig trees, but the lesson. Because Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, and he is going to come into direct confrontation with the Jewish leadership. What Jesus is saying is, I have come to Jerusalem and I expected fruit from the leadership of the Jewish community. And instead of fruit of righteousness, what he's going to get is opposition. And since the leadership that was supposed to be producing righteous fruit has not been producing righteous fruit, they are going to be under a curse. We're going to have an end to their authority within the Jewish community. It's a picture. And what we're going to see in the rest of chapter 11 and into all of chapter 12 is his interaction with the Jewish leadership. Sometimes they're poking him, and sometimes he's poking them. But it's all for the same purpose. Now, the disciples see the withered tree. They're not particularly interested in the picture. They're interested in the fact that the tree withered. When Jesus spoke to it, It withered. And so Jesus responds to their interest about the tree. And Jesus answered them, verse 22, have faith in God. We could just stop right there and have a lesson for the next four or five hours about that phrase. Have faith in God. What is faith in God? Well, when God says something's going to happen, it's going to to happen. 
have faith that God is going to accomplish his purpose. And it's interesting that he tells them this because he has told them repeatedly what's going to happen in Jerusalem. And my contention is they don't believe it. Remember, we just had the crowd of people welcoming Jesus as the Messiah into the town. Woo, this is great. But Jesus has told them he's going to be beaten, he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles, and they're going to kill him. Oh, yes, and he's going to be resurrected from the dead. Jesus' first instruction to them is have faith in God. Have faith that God is going to accomplish what God says he's going to do. Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received, and it will be yours. He is talking about the power of faith and the power of faith to accomplish God's work. He tells them, if you have faith, not only can you talk to a fig tree and have it withered, you can actually take this mountain and move it. Now, why don't we do that? Because we have doubt. When you pray and you're not doubting, why do we have doubt? Well, the disciples are going to have a lot of doubt. The disciples are going to have doubt because they're going to see everything that they thought was going to happen fall apart. They thought they would be sitting on thrones. They thought they would be leading the Jewish community. They thought they would be in power. And Jesus is going to be crucified. Now, as an aside, to jump way ahead in the story, when Jesus is resurrected and the disciples see the resurrected Lord, those disciples are going to change the world. They're not going to be sitting on thrones. They're not going to be ruling kingdoms, but they are going to change the world because when they saw the resurrected Lord, that doubt is going to disappear. And every one of them, with the possible exception of John, is going to die for their faith. And you know what? They're okay with that. Why? Because they have faith and they pray and they do not doubt. Now, why do we, now forget you, why do I doubt? Because we lose sight of the resurrected Lord and we start looking at the world around us. And all of a sudden I pray to God, God, move this mountain but God, I know you really can't do that. I know you really can't. 
This passage, and there are similar passages that Jesus says, oftentimes cause us difficulty. Because we think that if I just sit here and think real hard and think and think and think, that I can get myself a new pony. I can get whatever it is I want. I actually don't want a pony, okay? Jesus understood that there is one prayer that will always be answered. God, thy will be done. But I don't want God's will to be done. I want my will to be done. Why do I want my will and not God's will? Because I don't have the faith that says God's will is what is best for me, what is best for my family, what is best for us. I still want mine. I still want my will to be done. Verse 25, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Oh yes, by the way, when you are praying, do this inventory in your head. Have I anger against someone? Do I have animosity towards someone? Do I have bitterness? Do I have something against someone else? And Jesus says, take care of that. Forgive them, and then God will deal with you. We see the same thing in a little bit different context in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, if you go to give an offering, you come to the church, you're going to put money in the plate, or you're going to go online and do it, whatever you do. When you give money and you realize you have a broken relationship with someone, it is kind of interesting. It says, leave your money, go deal with the relationship, and then come back and present your offering. I think it's interesting because it isn't just take your money and go home. No, go deal with it. And the fact that you've left your money sitting there is kind of the assurance that you're going to do that. Same thing here. We don't like this very common biblical theme, which in some form or fashion... Me receiving mercy from God is somehow dependent on me demonstrating forgiveness to other people, to those around us. We don't like that. It sounds too workish. But repeatedly, the scripture will tell us that. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive Mercy. Now we know, right? We know that we have received the mercy first. We know that we have received forgiveness first. 
But when we refuse to offer that forgiveness to those who have done us wrong, it is an indicator that we may not really have received the forgiveness that we thought we had. Okay. On to the confrontation. Verse 27. Remember, he's in Jerusalem. He is in the center of the Jewish leadership. Before all of this, he's been up there and people have been coming to him to challenge his position. Now he's on their home turf. Now, let me just throw in something for Esther's well-being. If you remember in our class, we used to have a nice elderly Jewish lady named Esther. And every time, every time I would get to passages like this, she would remind me vocally in class, it's not the Jewish people, it's the Jewish leadership that is going to attack Jesus. The reason that is important is that sometimes in, not sometimes, repeatedly in history, the Jews have been blamed for a lot of things and persecuted because of it. We need to remind ourselves repeatedly that Jesus was a Jew, right? The disciples were Jews. Many of the, most of the early converts were Jews. God's not out to zap the Jews. We're not out to zap the Jews. But what we are seeing is those that are in religious authority in Jerusalem feel threatened by Jesus and they've got to put him in his place. And that's what we're going to see for the remainder of chapter 11 and all of chapter 12. And they came to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. These are the bigwigs. You get the picture, right? We talked about this in a previous lesson. Jesus is going to come into Jerusalem almost every day for his last week. But he doesn't stay in Jerusalem. He walks outside of town to Bethany to stay at the family of friends. So every day he's coming back and forth. So he's coming in the day before he had cleansed the temple. That got somebody's attention. And today they're waiting for him. And they came to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? That's a good question. I mean, when somebody shows up at your door and wants you to arrest you, your first question is going, well, your second question, your first question is, what did I do? The second question is, who gives you the authority to arrest me? And if they say, I got this little badge out of my box of Cracker Jacks, you're going to say, no, you don't have that authority. Here we have those who do have the authority within 
the Jewish leadership, and they're coming to him and saying, show me your credentials. Show me what gives you the right to do what you're doing. It's actually a fair question. Do you remember Paul? At some point in there, he gives this list of reasons that he is way up there in the Jewish community. I was born a Jew. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of this tribe. I did this. I sat under this teacher. Here's my list of credentials. Even today, if you are reading something and it talks about somebody getting his PhD, they will oftentimes state who they studied under. He got his PhD studying under this person because that gives them authority. It gives them the right to be heard. So the leadership comes to Jesus and say, ask, what gives you the right to do this? Jesus said to them, I will ask one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. You ask me a question? I'm going to ask you a question first. Now, I think they have some expectation of what this question is going to be. What gives you the authority? I mean, that's what I would say, right? You're asking me. I'm asking you. Who gives you the authority? But you know what? They were ready for that question. I mean, we're the head dog. We are the head of this organization. We are Levi's priests. What are you? Nothing. You're some, from some other tribe. You can't be a priest. I think they were ready for that question. But that's not the question that he asked. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Oh, shoot. He doesn't want to know our credentials. He wants us to make a comment about John's credentials. Was John working on behalf of God? Or was John just some crazy madman living out in the desert doing his thing? So I've got this group of religious leaders. I've got Jesus standing there. Jesus asked him a question. And they look at each other and they go, come here. And they make a huddle. They're going to talk this over. How do we answer this question? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? Okay. But if we say from man... They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. You see the dilemma, right? There's two options. He's from God, or he's a madman roaming around the desert. If we say he's from God, obviously Jesus is going to say, He's from God, and you ignored him? Right? That would be the right response. 
So we can't give that answer. But if we say that he's just a guy, a madman living in the desert, well, there's Jesus, there's the leadership, and standing around them is a crowd of people watching the show. And you know what? They liked John. They may have thought he was a little crazy, but they thought he was a prophet. Go back to the Old Testament. Some of those prophets were some weird guys doing weird things, but you know what? God was speaking through them. Like it or not, this is God talking. And the people believe that. And the leadership go, wait a minute. If we answer he's just a crazy guy living in the desert, the people are going to come after us. So if we say that he's from God, we lose. If we say it's from man, we lose. Our best bet is to not answer the question. Which is probably a smart thing to do when you don't know the answer. And they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You're not going to answer my question. I'm not going to answer your question. Why didn't Jesus answer their question? Let's back up one more step. What is the answer to their question. By what authority is Jesus doing these things? That's the easy question. Jesus is the Son of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and without Him nothing was made. What gives Jesus his authority? He is the creator of the universe. Stop. Trust me. When you've created your own universe, you can be the top dog in that universe. Jesus is God. And as such, he, God, has ultimate authority to speak. Do you remember Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount? And at the very end of chapter 7, after Jesus has finished talking, it says the people were amazed because he spoke as one who had authority. Remember, he just told a fig tree to die, and it did. Jesus spoke as one who had authority. Now, as an aside, do we believe that? Do we believe that when Jesus says something, he's just a smart guy telling us something smart about how we might choose to live our lives? Or do we believe that he is the Son of God? Do we acknowledge his authority? So that's the second question. The first question is, why didn't he tell them? 
And the answer to that question is because they would not have believed. Now, I want to back up just a smidgen. Just a smidgen. Because this verse, this passage has always fascinated me. It's always fascinated me because of the dynamics of what's going on here. Isaiah 1.18 says what? God is speaking and God says, come let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, dot, dot, dot. How does he start that phrase? Come, let us reason together. So God is talking to you, and he's talking to me, and he says, let's talk about this. Let's think this through. Let's reason what you ought to do. Jesus asked the Jewish leadership a question, and it says they formed a huddle, and in the King James it says they reasoned among themselves. I'm going to give you just a rather bold statement. Most human problems are caused by the fact that we are reasoning among ourselves when God is sitting there wanting to reason with us. God is sitting there in the person of Jesus Christ wanting to reason with them. But they don't want to reason with him. They want to reason among themselves. When we exclude God from our thinking process we're going to end up in the wrong place. What we begin to do is to think how the Jewish leadership was thinking. If we give them this answer, we're toast. If we give them that answer, because the crowd will go against us, we're toast. We won't come up with an answer. Jesus, God, in the flesh, was standing there and they would not reason with him. They wanted to reason against him. And that is not a path that's going to get you anywhere. Let us reason with God, and we have some chance of ending up in the right place. Let us reason against God, and we will always end up in the wrong place. So, chapter 12, one more interaction and we'll be done. Although there's a lot more that will be next week's lesson. And he, Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. This is still talking to the Jewish leadership, okay? A man planted a vineyard and he put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. Okay? I go buy a piece of land, and I develop that land. I fence it in. I make the necessary modifications to make that land productive. It isn't just dry, barren land. It is land that is fruitful, 
It has been made to be fruitful, and I, the owner, expect it to be fruitful. And I lease it out to somebody, and I said, you tend it, and I get a cut of whatever you make out of it. This has been a pattern throughout human history. Okay? When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. He wanted a return on his investment. No problem with that. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Okay? You own rental property. You send somebody over to get the rent. And instead of giving you the rent, they beat up the guy you sent over. That's the picture right here. Okay? Again, he sent them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so, with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. This is, going to, this is who's going to inherit all the property. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Now, I don't know what legal system they're operating in. Somehow killing the heir doesn't get you the property. But, you know, this is the way we think when we're thinking apart from God. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. It's Jesus' turn to ask another question. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Okay. That's the question that he asks. Now, he doesn't really wait for an answer. He's going to give them the answer. But what will the owner do? You have a rental property? You send somebody down to get it, they beat him up. You send somebody else, they beat him up. You send somebody else, and they kill him. Bury the body in the backyard. You send somebody else, you send somebody else, you send somebody else. Finally, you say, I'm going to send my son because they will respect him. And the people in the property go, huh, let's kill him. And there won't be anybody left to inherit the property. And we'll get it by default. And they kill him. What is the master going to do? Now, in our society today, where we have legal options, there would be police at the door. There would be the SWAT team coming in, breaking open the front door. We would deal with it. In this time, maybe not so much. But you know what the master would do? Would he say, oh, well, wasn't that good a property anyway? I'll just give it up. No. He's going to go get his big, strong guys that work for him. They're going to get their big, strong guys who are their buddies. They're going to get big clubs, and they're going to go beat the fool out of these people. Why? They just killed his son. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyards to others. 
Have you not read this? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Let's just read the next verse, and then we'll come back. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Duh. So they left and went away. What is the purpose of this parable? Who is the owner? What is the vineyard? God had dealt with Abraham. God had dealt with Abraham and made a covenant relationship with him. Not because Abraham was perfect, he was far from it, but because God had made a covenant with Abraham, Abraham believed that covenant, and we are told that he believed, and God says, I'll take that as righteousness. You're not going to be perfect, but because you believed, and God established that relationship with Abraham and his descendants, and most of the Old Testament history is God dealing with that relationship. The Jews grew into a mighty number. They were in captivity in Egypt. God brought them out, gave them the promised land, said, here. And Moses, in his final speech to them, says, God didn't choose you because you were the toughest guys on the planet. He didn't choose you because you were the smartest people on the planet. He didn't choose you because you were the most righteous. He chose you because he had a relationship with that, your father, Abraham. And God is coming back, Jesus, and he wants to see the fruit of his labor. The Jewish leadership should have been waiting for the Messiah and should have been waiting to demonstrate the fruit that had been produced in that relationship, that fruit of righteousness. And instead, the prophets come and they kill them. The prophets come and they beat them. The prophets come and they don't want to hear from it. And finally, John the Baptist comes and he gets bumped off. And here is the owner's son. And they're going to kill him. Why? Because they don't want to be the tenants in the vineyard. They want to be the owner of the vineyard. They want these people to be mine. I'm in charge of this organization. I'm in charge of these people. I might add, whenever you look at any organization led by sinful human beings, that's like most of them, right? 
you see this problem where leadership tries to say, this is mine, instead of I am managing this for someone else. And they perceived <laughs> that Jesus was talking about them. And you know, they perceived correctly. Now, I know as we work through all these examples, I know what you're thinking. Because I think the same thing, right? What a bunch of idiots. How could you be like this? How could you not respond when the son of the owner of the vineyard shows up? But you see, in chapter 13, we're going to see predictions of Jesus' second coming. And you know what he's going to say? Be prepared. Be ready. Be ready to demonstrate the fruit. But you know what? A lot of us are just like the Jewish leadership. We're more interested in doing our own thing. We're more interested in doing what we believe, what we perceive, what we understand as being right instead of acknowledging that we are just the tenants working in the field that God has given us. And if we are tenants working in the field that God has given us, God has the reasonable expectation of fruit. That's what he's going to expect when Christ returns the second time. Well, you know, I could have produced fruit, but it was hard. Yeah. I could have produced fruit, but I, I, I didn't want to. Yeah. We would love to think that we would not respond like the Jewish leadership did. You know what? We're sinners just like them. So we too should understand that God has a reasonable expectation. Why does he have that reasonable expectation? Because Jesus has told us what we are supposed to do. Why should we believe him? Because he speaks with one who has authority. Not the authority of the tenant, the authority of the owner. And here's the bad part. If there is no fruit, there's only curse. And that's the fig tree. And we don't like that answer. We like to think that we can beat up the prophets kill some of the prophets, beat up the sun, do our own thing, produce our own fruit, whatever that is. And when, G when God shows up, God says, oh, I know it was tough on you. Don't worry about it. Do we really expect the owner of the vineyard to just pretend that we didn't kill the son. And here is 
the question that I alluded to earlier. Who killed the son? For much of church history, unfortunately, the answer to that question was the Jews killed the son. Let's kill the Jews. But the Jews didn't kill the son. Okay, it was the Romans. Well, who wants to beat up on Romans today? They're not even around. Well, they are, but not as an empire. Do we tell you who killed the son? Your sin and my sin. Jesus voluntarily, of his own volition, chose to die for you and me. That's bizarre. But you see, that's the story. So next week we will continue with the conflict between Jesus and the leadership. But I want you to remember, this isn't just the leadership back then, although it was. This is a discussion of us not being ready to acknowledge that he is the owner and we are the servants. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son. I pray, Lord, that we would be prepared for his return. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.